If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 539. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Of course, great deals coming up. It's going to be holiday season. McClanahan Academy is never out of stock. Also, you can click on that shop tab at brianmclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Those make great gifts. You can also buy one of my books. Just go wherever you buy books online. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever it is, you can purchase one of my books. If you don't want to shop at Amazon, shop at one of those other places. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo, I'm sorry, get my autograph, not my logo, but my autograph on a book plate, right? So if you want my autograph, you can click on that book plate option. I'll sign it, send it out to you in the mail, and there you go. You can also throw a few pennies my way if you want to. Go to anchor.fm if you want to support the show that way financially by giving a monthly contribution. As always, you can share it around on social media. You can rate it where you get your podcasts. You can let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And you can send me those show requests. I may not respond to your email, but I do read them. All right. So let me talk about the topic of the day. And it's, again, something that I, I think is important. And in 2012, Clyde Wilson and I wrote a book, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. And we did that because I think we're at a point, and we're seeing it now, concretely with the Straussian ascendancy during the Trump administration. Who are American conservative heroes? In the 1950s, we had Russell Kirk. And Russell Kirk talked about the conservative mind. And we had people like John C. Calhoun and John Adams. I remember having a conversation with Clyde about this. And there's a whole bunch of other people having a conversation with Clyde about this when I was his student. And I said, you know, what's going on here? Russell Kirk... He's got all these people that are that are um, conservative, but a lot of them don't see eye to eye. And of course, Kirk, I think, was weakest on the late 19th century. He didn't really know who to talk about there in the late 19th century. So, you know, we had E.L. Godkin. He talked about him a little bit, which, of course, we talked about in Forgotten Conservatives. But he had some others, right? And in that period of time, he really didn't know who to focus on. He had completely lost the South. Now, he did make a statement about that. You know, the South was too worried about itself to offer much resistance to anything. The South was, was defeated, and it was going through a reorganization process, so they couldn't really produce great conservative thinkers in that time period. The, they were out. And there is some truth to that, right? But I think that he misses some important people in that post-bellum South that still had a lot to offer American conservatism. Were they ascendant? Were they dominant figures in America? No. And I think you can see that, you could say that late 19th century was not a conservative period of time. The problem with that, 
That's Russell Kirk's vision, and I would tend to agree with that. The problem with that from the modern conservative establishment is that they don't see it that way. They believe people like U.S. Grant was conservative. They believe that Grant was a conservative, and they believe that Lincoln was a conservative. So see, what they've started to do in all of this, this is where they get they confuse themselves. I think the ultimate goal, and I think the ultimate goal for Jaffa in saying that equality is conservative, and I've said this before, is that if you could take that position away from the left, that equality was actually a conservative American principle, then you take all the steam out of their ideology and you become the dominant force in America. You, Hey, we all agree with you. Equality is important, but they then get to decide where it stops. The left will never take that position. They get to keep going with equality until they get to equity. And then after equity, I don't know what they're going to come up with, but it's going to be something. I mean, this is the entire premise of Marxism. The state will wither away. There's no need for the state. You see all these people running around saying the progress. I mean, Marx, the pure Marxist, would say there's no need for an administrative state because once you get to equity, the state no longer needs to exist. If you read Marx, that's what he says. Once you get to the point where everyone is equal in economics, social status, whatever it is, once you get to that point, you don't need the state any longer because people have adopted this and they believe in it 100%. Go read Bellamy's Looking Backward. It is a pure Marxist definition of 19th century progressivism. Because in looking backward, you have a state, or a city in this case, Boston, it's fitting that it's in Boston, a city that is equity. Everything is equal. And this time traveler can't understand. He doesn't, I mean, eventually he comes, oh, this is great. But at first, I mean, wait, a doctor makes as much as a waiter? What's going on here? There's no currency? There's no money? Well, no, because it's equity. You see, the people that believe that Marx and all this, you have to have the administrative state, they would say that, uh, Marx would say that's not pure Marxism. That's you're, Yeah, you're at the socialism stage, right? Where the, where the middle class then controls the government and they take it away from the merchant class. But the, the workers, the people at the bottom, still are oppressed. And look at the language of the modern left. This is what they do. And it's all based on that line from the Declaration, all men are created equal. We believe it. And if Jefferson wrote it, then it has to be American scripture. It has to be American creed. But of course, we know that Jefferson didn't buy it. We know that most of the founding generation didn't believe it because even when they put the language in their documents, their founding documents, they still did things like pass laws that prohibited blacks from voting. They know they didn't believe it. We know that we didn't have an ideological state, but see, Marxism is ideology, and and you have utilitarianism. It's what I talked about yesterday. All that's ideology. But we also know that there were proponents of centralization in America long before Marx, long before Bentham, long before any of that. And that's Hamilton. That's why I wrote a book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I mean, this this is the whole point of it. Because those ideas, that's a purely American vision. And Lincoln is purely American in what he's doing. He's not European in that he's not digesting the views of Europe. He thinks of things like, say, 
an old Hamiltonian or a Henry Clay National Republican. I mean, this is what he this is how he thought of things. But Lincoln is not conservative. No one would have confused Lincoln for a conservative in 1861 or 1862. And that way, when I talked about James Oakes last week, and I said, you know, his his position is the Republicans were actually pushing abolition early in the war. No one would have considered Lincoln to be a, a conservative. But yet conservatives today think that Lincoln is a conservative. Why? Because they've bought this Harry Jaffa nonsense of equality as conservative. So they think Lincoln's a conservative. They think Grant's a conservative. They think these people are conservative. They think John Marshall's conservative. Conservative against what? Well, I mean, Marshall would say he was conserving this halfway house. I mean, in his mind, a a revolution, but not necessarily a French revolution. So he was worried about guillotines being rolled around the countryside of Virginia, and maybe they'd show up at his plantation and lop his head off. This is what he's worried about wasn't going to happen. You didn't have that kind of radical revolutionary spirit here in America. It just didn't exist. They were worried about preserving what they already had, which was the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights. In fact, take, for example, the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Where can you find that exact language? Well, the English Bill of Rights of 1688. This is the thing. They're worried about preserving, other word for that is conserving, these principles that have been established and codified through hundreds of years of precedent and custom and practice in England slash Great Britain. That's what they're looking to do. It's the ancient rights of Englishmen. It's the ancient constitutions. It's these things that they were worried about conserving. Not some new metaphysical principle of equality. So when you start looking at heroes of American conservatism, and you go right to Lincoln... Or you go to Grant like Brett Baer does or Newt Gingrich or all these morons that run around that say, you know, these people, he's Republican or Republican Party, conservative, always been conservative. Always been. They're undermining their own position. When you have Michael Anton running around saying, well, the Declaration's organic document. No, it's not. No, it's not. Not at all. I don't care what the Code of the United States says. That's inconsistent with the definition of organic law because you can't prove that it was. It's just, well, we're going to throw it in there. Why? Well, because that makes the left's position more palatable. It makes it more, it, it makes it preempt everything else. If all men are created equal, then the left wins in that line in the way the left defines it. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the, the founding generation was correct in how they treated uh, black Americans at all. But the point is they did it because they didn't believe it. They did it because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that. They believed that people, Englishmen, citizens, were equal under the law. But that stopped there. Equal under the law. So that that term is problematic. And I mean, look, Southerners were writing about this. And they were saying, this this is not the founding. Well, these people are all Hagelins. These are state. Rights come from the state. It's not the way that's... If you look at Albert Taylor Bledsoe, for example, he wrote a book entitled Liberty and Slavery, where he said, uh, you can still have a natural right to liberty, but that liberty can be circumscribed. We know this. We know this. We know it because we have an amendment to the Constitution that says you can be denied your liberty with due process. You can be denied your life with due process. You can be denied your property with due process. 
right? So all of those things can be denied. There's no abstract, I mean, no, liberty is not absolute. Your life can be circumscribed by the state. It's not absolute, right? If you do something wrong, the state can decide you have no right to life. That's, I mean, the, if, if you believe in due process, if you believe in that, then, I mean, you're, you're at this, you're at the mercy of the state ultimately. But anyways, so my point to all this is saying that you can't have these people be conservative heroes and really believe in American conservatism. If you're going to believe in American conservatism, this is what Clyde and I were trying to do in that book, you have to find different people. And first and foremost among them, you have to find John C. Calhoun. This is the point. You can't have American conservatism without John C. Calhoun. And he was not a Hagelin. He was not a nihilist. He was not an ideologue. John C. Calhoun believed in republicanism. He believed in the American founding. He believed what it was. And he believed, most importantly, in the union. Calhoun was practical. He wasn't someone that had ideology or some abstraction on his brain all the time. In fact, even when he defends slavery, he doesn't defend it in the abstract. He defends it in practice, as it is in the South at the time. That's what he's doing. He's not saying slavery is good all the time or slavery is great. He's saying slavery as it exists now in the American South is a positive good. This is what he was saying. Now, again, we can dispute him on that, but this is he's not an ideologue. That's the important thing to take away from this. And I applaud Chronicles Magazine for running a piece by my friend John Devaney. See, uh, the other day, remembering John C. Calhoun. You have to understand that we are in a war over the understanding of American conservatism and, and, and what that is. Who, who are the champions? Who are the people? And John C. Calhoun has to be front and center. He has to be. And you see, there was a time in the 1950s when he still was. And American conservatives would look back at Calhoun and say, yeah, I mean, we agree with a lot of what Calhoun is saying. We don't agree with everything, but we agree with a lot of it. Notice that in Russell Kirk's conservative mind, Abraham Lincoln is absent. Hamilton does not have a chapter dedicated to him. He is in the book, but he's not a purist. He's not somebody that would be conservative in the way Kirk defines it. He does talk about Hamilton, but not like he does Adams or Calhoun or John Randolph of Roanoke. Kirk loved Southern conservatives. He loved them. He thought they were great. He thought they were preserving something that was worth preserving. But it doesn't include Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln is not a conservative. If I mean, there's no way you can make that case except from a Straussian West Coast Claremont position. And it's faulty, and it's bad, and it's ruining American conservatism. Because if Lincoln's a conservative, then anything the left does is justified. Anything the left does is justified. Because Lincoln didn't care about the Constitution. If you're a constitutionalist, quote-unquote, you can't admire Lincoln. If you're a constitutionalist, Lincoln cannot be your guy. He knew it. Lincoln knew it. He wasn't upholding the Constitution. He was ruining it. I would agree with the Straussians. If you're a constitutionalist, you can't be a Wilsonian. 100% true. You can't be an advocate of Franklin Roosevelt. 100% true. You can't be any of that. You also can't be a Lincolnian. Because Lincoln was reinventing the founding, refounding the founding. That's what Gary Will said. He's revolutionizing the revolution. Which was a conservative revolution. I mean, it wasn't even really a revolution. It was a war for independence. 
And the declaration was by no means an organic, quote-unquote, organic document or organic law of the United States. That they would incorporate part of it in the state constitutions at times. Yes, they did. And some of the language, yes, they did. In fact, New York copied the entire document and put it in there. Put it in their uh, state constitution. They did that. There's no question about it. So in that case, I mean, then the New York Constitution would be organic law. But I say all that to say that what we have in America is not, when you talk about conservative heroes, you have to have Calhoun there, or you don't really have American conservatism. And so this piece by John Devaney, uh, remembering John C. Calhoun, I like it. Uh, It's a great piece. You should go to Chronicles and read it. He says some interesting things. He says, at the same time, Calhoun was ardent in upholding what he believed to be right and strenuous in advocating his positions, which included defending slavery and the interests of Southern whites. To condemn him for this, as our contemporaries are apt to do, is to condemn his entire generation. It is rather rich that those who support abortion embrace America's forever wars abroad and laud the oligarchs whose policies enrich the 1% at everyone else's expense, Thunder from their self-appointed judgment seats against the sins and sinners of the past. This is true. He says the political theorist Francis Graham Wilson provides an antidote to the myopic and destructive presentism disordering our view of Calhoun. Wilson taught that a scholar must understand the people of the past as they understood themselves. With Calhoun, our understanding must begin with this Calvinist, Scots-Irish upbringing in South Carolina's upcountry. The Calvinism of these people differed from that of the vines of Essex and Cambridge who settled the city upon the hill. The severe in their moral judgments, upcountry Carolinians, such as his father, Patrick Calhoun, were suspicious of any schemes to erect utopias or to empower central governments, be they in Charleston, Columbia, or Washington. Liberty was the chief political value of these people. At most, government kept the peace, but no more than this. The suspicion of consolidated government was not unique to the Scots-Irish. It had deep roots in the agriculture interests throughout the South. Calhoun was no different. He considered himself first and foremost a farmer and a planter, not a lawyer, legislator, or political theorist. He wrote to many of his contemporaries that he believed there was no better life than the farmers. He was happiest at Fort Hill, the family plantation, which for him was more real than the artifices of Washington, D.C. Think about what, I mean, I love that part too, because think about one of his most famous speeches. What is it called? The Fort Hill Address. The Fort Hill Address. This is what it's called. He wrote it and gave it at Fort Hill, his plantation. That was his country. This is what Nathaniel Macon said. Look, he was very happy at Buck Spring. He checked his mail once a month. He was happy at his country, his plantation. He didn't leave it. Calhoun would have preferred not to leave it. His wife certainly didn't like to be gone from it. So, I mean, we have to understand Calhoun as a man of his time. and judging things by how he judged them in time. We can say that we don't agree with Calhoun on on his view of society, but at the time, this is what he thought. This is what most people in America thought at the time. But we can find good nuggets out of Calhoun. That's why I did that little video on Calhoun for the Abbeville Institute where I talked about Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, American, and how important he actually is, and how anybody in America, left or right, could find a lot of great things to admire about John C. Calhoun. By any measure, Calhoun was a successful farmer. He was a leader in the Pendleton Farmer Society and served a term as its president. 
He's not only a cultivator of the region's leading cash crop, cotton, but successfully experimented with growing rice, importing Bermuda grass for erosion control, and cultivating silkworms, from which he ex- extracted enough to make himself silk suits. He described farming as his favorite pursuit, and when at Fort Hill, it so absorbed his attention that he paid little heed to politics. In Congress, he viewed his task as representing the agricultural interest. At the same time, his vision sought to accommodate what he considered the legitimate interests of industry and other sections. Calhoun's vision was national in scope. He did not fully share his father's anti-federalist stance and remained a staunch Union man, though he appreciated the anti-federalist fear of consolidated political power. Calhoun perceived that if the federal government could regulate or abolish slavery, the Union could not long endure. An old political nemesis, John Randolph of Roanoke, was Calhoun's model of resistance. Calhoun once thought Randolph too unyielding, too uncompromising, too impractical, but had been taught his error and took pleasure in acknowledging it. And this is, actually said this, what's interesting, and if you take my 26 speeches that changed America class at McClanahan Academy, I cover Calhoun's positive good speech. And one of the things he said in there was interesting. He said, look, he thinks that Congress can abolish slavery. If they can pass a force bill, if they can pass a protective tariff that's unconstitutional, why can't they abolish slavery? Purely within their realm, if they can do these things, they can do that thing. We all know these other things are unconstitutional, but they did it anyways. So why wouldn't they do this? What's to stop them? And if it's such a bad thing, we should abolish it right now, but no one's willing to do that, is his point. The North's antebellum attack on slavery was, to Calhoun, a part of a larger attack on the South's economy, society, and equal standing in the Union. The abolitionists accused the South of inhumanity and cruelty. Stung by these charges, Calhoun defended slavery as practiced in the South as a positive good and its effects for both races in Southern society. He would not yield the point. He reasoned that to do so would have invited more invective and demonization of the South, which in turn would provoke Southerners to quit the Union. And this last point Calhoun proved prophetic. Now, he would not yield the point. This is one thing I think conservatives have to admire about Calhoun. And same thing with John Randolph of Roanoke. They were unyielding in their point. They weren't willing to compromise on on these things. We can say these things may have been were wrong, right? I mean, but he's his position was no, shut up. No, shut up. We're not yielding this point. No. If we do, we're done. So shut up. No. Right? This this is it. I mean, this this is <laughs> this is where Americans, this is why I've said this this phrase on this podcast. This is where Americans should be in this kind of stuff. Calhoun summed up his view of Republican government in his Jefferson Day Toast of 1830. In response to the words of Andrew Jackson's toast, our federal union, it must be preserved, Calhoun par- parried with his own. To the union, next to our liberty most dear. May we always remember that it can only be preserved by distributing equally the benefits and burdens of union. His policies attempted to strike a delicate balancing act to limit federal power, but also to support the union's financial and industrial development. In addition to his mastery of public finance and banking, he was also keenly interested in railroads and the development of the Mississippi Valley for its potential as a great inland port. He hoped to tie the West and South economically, including the northern states along the Ohio River and the upper Mississippi Valley. If this seemed a type of economic discrimination against the Northeast, Calhoun was quick to point to the generous federal expenditures that paid for port and harbor developments in the Northeast, as well as extensive systems of post roads. In foreign relations, Calhoun was an advocate of peace and anti-imperialist, In the Oregon Territory boundary dispute, he rejected President Polk's bellicose rhetoric in favor of a policy of negotiation with Great Britain. Though it was viewed as advantageous to Southern interests, Calhoun opposed the war with Mexico. 
He was also a severe critic of what today is described as nation-building. To those who advocated the establishment of a friendly government in Mexico protected by the United States military, he warned that such a government would, quote, inevitably be overthrown as soon as our forces are withdrawn, luring the United States into a vicious imperial cycle of withdrawing, of withdrawal and military engagement. Calhoun's commitment to republicanism and the equal sharing of benefits and burdens within the Union require magnanimity, restraint, and prudence. Without these virtues, he feared that popular rule would evolve into a tyranny of what John Randolph had called king numbers, as political majorities oppressed political minorities for their benefit. This is what we have. I mean, look, we have this today. You have the Democrats saying, we've got the majority. We're going to do this. We're just going to ram it through. And we're so close that what's happening now is that we have one-size-fits-all government, a big national government, and if you do that, you're going to coerce the minority, which is very close in size to the majority. Well, that becomes immoral and unjust. Devaney concludes, his contemporaries referred to Calhoun as the last Roman. It is a fitting description. The great South Carolinian champion, the Republican principles of courage, prudence, restraint, liberty, and shared power between the states and the central government. His personal devotion to the agrarian life linked him to the two Catos and Cicero. Caesar Augustus once remarked about Cicero that he was a learned man and a lover of his country. Despite the cloud of, of despite the cloud that has darkened his reputation in recent years, Calhoun is deserving of the same epitaph. This is true. He is. Look, I mean, Calhoun should not be singled out by the Straussians, by the neocons, as the ultimate evil. This is where Hugh Hewitt, Calhoun is just evil. I can't describe any other word for the guy. He's evil. It's ridiculous. We've lost all meaning of the word evil, number one. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. We've lost all meaning of that. And now we've lost all understanding of who Calhoun actually is. Devaney also said this, Calhoun argued for giving each district, uh, each distinct interest, I'm sorry, or division in the union a negative power over legislation harmful to it. Such a negative power, be it nullification, a veto, or interposition, would encourage compromise and harmony between the majority and minority. Calhoun's views were informed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. They are still very much alive today in debates over the Second Amendment, immigration, and drug legalization. They retain a vital role in American politics. All true. It's all true. So, most people have never read his disquisition. I would say that it was published after his death. Most people have never read it. They don't even know what's in it. They just think, Calhoun, defender of slavery, bad. Calhoun, defender of slavery, evil. And when you have this cartoonish image of Calhoun created by the Straussians, and that he's just an ideologue, and he's just a Hagelin, and all these things that he's not, well, you get pieces like I talked about yesterday on our two constitutions and how... He didn't mention Calhoun, but basically he's getting to that point that Calhoun, Calhoun was an ideologue and uh, the antithesis of the American founding. It's just not true. It's just not true. So I wanted to bring up this piece by Devaney and talk about heroes, right? We're going to have conservative heroes. You have to have Calhoun in that bunch. You have to have Southern conservatives in that bunch because they were holding on to the original Federal Republic longer than any other group of people. And I think it's important to understand that. And that is the essence of American conservatism. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.